You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. We've got this phrase we use in our culture called climbing the ladder, right? When we think about climbing the ladder, it's generally the ladder of success. And when I ask you to think about that, I, I would ask you to consider what, what ladder are you climbing? I recognize that some folks in this room may be saying, I'm climbing the ladder to make it onto a team, a sports team. Maybe it's in the band. Maybe you're thinking, I'm climbing the ladder to get to be first chair with whatever your instrument is. Maybe it's student government. Maybe it's graduation. I don't know. Maybe it's getting your start in your career. Maybe it's moving up within your organization to be a decision maker. Maybe some of you think I'm climbing the ladder and my goal is to hang my own shingle out someday, or maybe it's to acquire some material possession. That's fine. Maybe it's a sense of whatever you want your retirement account to be. I'm not here to bash ladders. I mean, I think we all are striving for something. The question is this, how dangerous it becomes when we mark our identity by the ladder that we're climbing. That the moment that we turn that ladder into our identity, we're setting ourselves up for a real dangerous position. So as we come to it to start thinking about it, I guess I would ask you to consider, what ladder are you on? A great quote from Thomas Merton. He was a, a, an American monk, writer, theologian, mystic person, and he wrote this, People may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find that once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Maybe you've been there. You got to the top of the ladder and you said, this isn't all that it's cracked up to be. I thought I wanted this, but I've now climbed the ladder and now I'm stuck. I'm stuck on this ladder that's a dead end ladder. Yes, I would ask you to consider as we have started in this, if you want to go ahead and turn to your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 5, we've started with this idea that Jesus is talking to a group of disciples. These people, Jesus is drawing a crowd everywhere he goes, and people are showing up, some because they want to hear from Jesus, some because they've got an infirmity that they want Jesus to heal, or a loved one has an infirmity and they want Jesus to heal it. But Jesus is saying some really radical things in this. When he said, how fortunate are the poor in spirit, that's a new thing. Nobody's ever said that before. And so out of this group of people, we've got four levels of disciples. The scripture just said the disciples came. He started teaching them. We talked about the fact that disciple, there's just one word in the, in the Greek New Testament for disciple, and yet it's used in a variety of ways. It talks about people who aren't even saved. They're just there to check out the words of Jesus. Who is this God? And that's the curious. And then there are the people who become convinced, okay, he's different. I believe he's who he says that he is. I'm not ready to follow him yet, but I get it that there's something different about him. And then there becomes the convinced, okay, I'm excuse me, there's the committed that says, all right, I'm following him. Somewhere between that convinced, he's who he says he is, and I'm going to follow him is, I think, where salvation takes place. Then you end up with the commissioned, those who are going to serve. And so as Jesus starts talking about these things on the Sermon on the Mount, I think that they're asking some pretty significant questions. I've been climbing this ladder of Judaism about how I'm supposed to live, 
is Jesus saying I'm on the wrong ladder? Maybe I am on the wrong ladder. Because a lot of people thought Messiah was going to change all the rules. And so maybe what he's going to do is he's going to do away with the ladder altogether. Because when we come to this conversation, I think everybody there, the curious, the convinced, the committed, and the commissioned, I think they're all asking the same question. What do I do with what Jesus is saying? What is he saying about this ladder, this spiritual ladder I've been climbing? Because he begins with these beatitudes and the idea that he's saying how fortunate it is. See, there's this proclamation. You are fortunate if, and then there's nine different conditions or characteristics, he said. How fortunate are you if you're poor in spirit? And then he gives you a promise that if that character, if you match or manifest that characteristic, then you get this promise. He did that with nine of them. And it's pretty mind-blowing because it ter- turns our whole world, our worldview, upside down. And then last week he came and said, in this world, I want you to be salt. You're a preserving force in this. You add flavor to a world that's bland. You're light. In a world that's dark, I want you, I want you to be light. And so it's against that backdrop that he comes into this passage today. And in this passage, we're going to talk about the law a lot because it's central to what Jesus is trying to say. For a crowd of people that may have thought that Jesus was going to abolish that system, we're going to see that there's some real strong words. But I feel like we kind of need to invest a little bit of time to understand maybe some thoughts that are going to come up in this conversation. One was, what's the law? Well, it's the most commonly accepted breakdown of the law which goes all the way back to the 12th century. And the law was comprised of 613 laws. 248 of those were, do this. There were 365 that said, do not do this, okay? If you do the math, it's 613, you can trust me. So 248, if you're a checklist person, you may really, really enjoy this. Do these things, although 248 is a lot to do, 365, do not do these things, but man, that's a lot to remember. And so how do I step into that? Well, within that, the law really broke down into three different parts. There was the moral law. It deals with our personal holiness. Now, I will tell you that when we come and talk about the law, there's a question or questions that we ask ourselves. When you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you might say, well, I'm a New Testament believer. I don't need the Old Testament. And I've heard that said before. And is it still binding? Well, the moral law is all still binding. It's based on God's character. And so it's still considered to be our calling to personal holiness. The Ten Commandments all fall into the moral law. There was also a civil law. It had to do with the relationships between individuals. It was their form of government. We have a form of government. And so that was their civil law. We're not under the civil law anymore. And then there was a ceremonial law, which how do we worship God? What does it look like? What's the calling of the priesthood? What are the calling of the feasts? What are we doing with with, uh, sacrifice and all those things? Well, we have a new high priest. And so that part doesn't pertain to us really either. But that moral law is still guiding for us as believers in the New Testament church. What's the point of the law? Well, Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, makes it really clear. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the law that I set before you today? Is that God provided his law for his people, and the idea was this, I am righteous as your God, I'm your God, you're my people. If you're going to relate to me, you need to understand the standard of righteousness that I bring to the equation. 
So I'm going to prescribe it for you. And there has never been a people group that a law so righteous as the one that I'm handing you. Deuteronomy 30 goes further. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So it's not that we can have this as a sidebar. No, the law was intended to be our focus, that we would live that out, that we would live it out with all of our heart, with all of our soul. How many of them? 613 of them. It's going to take everything we've got. Matter of fact, it's going to take more than what we have, and we're going to get to that in the course of this message. But that's the idea, is that this is our wholehearted, singular commitment that drives everything about who we are and what we do. Well, Deuteronomy goes on to add this. He said to him, take to heart all the words to which I'm warning you today. So can I dismiss any of them? I mean, 613, that's a lot. Let me kind of move some of them out of the way because it's just too much for me to keep up with. And Deuteronomy says, no, not only do you take them all to heart, matter of fact, you, may, you need to command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law too. So now what we have is the idea is that it's total and complete righteousness. It's there, it's to be our driving passion because it will take all of our heart and soul. How do we perpetuate it? Well, we transmit it from parent to child and we hand it on to the next generation. That's how it's gonna move forward. And so when we come to this, we look at what's going on in this and we can say, okay, so the law brought about righteousness. So what's the rule for the church? Where does this fit into our life as a New Testament believer? Well, Paul writes to us in Galatians. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Is that that righteousness was there to protect us from ourselves, whatever evil inclination we may have had, whatever, whatever judgment we would have exerted on the, in the world. It was there to be our guardian. It was there to protect us in order that we might be justified by faith. When? When Christ came. So what do we do with the latter? Is the latter still binding for the church, or is the latter of our spiritual practice of the law not binding? Well, Paul goes on and says this, but now faith has come. We're no longer under the guardian, which is what the law was. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons or daughters of God through faith. Okay, so now we recognize that the law has a purpose for us. Is it still binding? Is it still there? Is it the ladder we're supposed to be climbing? Paul in Romans says this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, let's put it in context. If the law was given as a righteousness thing, that we could understand what was demanded upon us, that if we were going to be saved on our own actions, that we would have to have a right ethical living before God that, that was all 613 laws. And we're incapable of doing that. But what we see already Paul pointing to is the fact that for Christ put an end to the law of, for righteousness for those who believe. If you do not know the Lord, then that standard of righteousness still pertains. But for those who know the Lord, then we've been set free on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross. So that's where we begin. Matthew chapter 5. I invite you to turn with me as we move into this. Now, as we do this, I'm going to read, we just have a few verses today. So I'm going to read the four verses, and then we're going to move back and talk through each of them individually. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, pick up Jesus' words. This is him speaking when he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least, called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's got a lot of words to tell us how he feels about the law, what he wants to say. The question right off the bat is for every disciple there, the curious, the convinced, the committed, or the commissioned, if their question is, is my ladder against the wrong wall? The answer is no. Your ladder's not against the wrong wall. It's against the correct wall. You're just incapable of climbing it. You can't do it. So Jesus begins with this idea where he says, don't think that I've come to abolish. Now, that word abolish is the word that you would have said or used to take about the taking down or the destruction of a building. Think with me if you've ever watched a building implode where they put all the explosive in the building and you begin to watch it and you can see all the explosions happening. And then you just watch that building crumble and that huge cloud that comes down from it. Jesus is saying, hey, make no mistake. When he says, do not think, he's saying really clearly, let's be really clear. I did not come to implode the law. Matter of fact, he uses a different word, the exact opposite word. Not only did I not come to uh, implode the law or abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. The fact is, there was nothing wrong with the law. The law had to be fulfilled by somebody. The penalty of not fulfilling the law is eternal separation from God. We would say for the wages of sin are death. There's nothing wrong with the law. What was wrong was our inability to fulfill the law. And so Jesus makes it really clear when he shows up and says, look, I've come to fulfill the law. And when we see that word law and prophets, he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and he put them together. Now, this book, this Bible is comprised of 66 books, 39 of which are in the Old Testament. So when all of a sudden he says, don't think that I've come to abolish it. I didn't come to implode those first 39 books of your Bible. I came to fulfill them. I had a purpose in doing this because they all matter. Now, let's pick up and go to Paul when he's writing to Timothy where he says that all Scripture is read out by God, including the first 39 books. Absolutely. They're all breathed out by God for four purposes. They're profitable for us for what? For teaching, where we don't know how to move forward. For reproof, when we're going forward in the wrong direction. For correction, that when we're going forward in the wrong direction, that he says, no, go this way, now we correct. And training in righteousness, that we may learn how to live in righteousness. For four purposes. Do the first 39 books do that? Absolutely. God breathed it out for us for his purposes to make it profitable that we be, would, be, would be taught we would be reproved, that we could make a correction, and that we would be trained. Why? So that every man and woman would be complete, equipped for every good work. That's his purposes. So we don't turn around and dismiss this. He fulfilled it. What does that mean? He lived out and met the standard of perfection that was laid out in the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral laws. He personified all of it in word and deed and action in everything that he did. That's part of it. So now we're left with the question of what do we do? Well, verse 18, 
For truly I say to you, now I got to tell you, if you were to study all of Matthew, and in this series we're just going to do three chapters, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. But if you did all of Matthew, you would see that Jesus uses that phrase 31 times. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is making a pronouncement as an authority, is that he is about to say, you need your ears to perk up. If you have a dog and you've ever called that dog and you watch their ears go up, that's the impact of this. When Jesus looks at them and says, truly I say to you, ears up. If he's saying it, we need to hear it. So then he says, until heaven and earth pass away. Now, heaven and earth passing away, that speaks about how long is the duration of this law going to be. And I'm going to tell you is that it's pretty much as far as you can imagine, but it's not eternity. Here's what I mean by that. We studied Peter earlier this year. And Peter writes about this, where he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, everything is going to be dissolved. What sort of people ought excuse me, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, just let that sink in. This world that we're living in is not eternal. It's going to be dissolved. At some point, even the heavenly bodies will burn. But That's not the end of the story. According to the promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, when we talk about the fact that he's saying that the law is not eternal, but it's until heaven and earth pass away, why is the law in effect until heaven and earth pass away? Because the law was given to teach us how righteousness will dwell in our land as we act it out. We're incapable of doing it, but it's our guardian. It's to teach us how to live righteously to the best of our ability, which we can't. But in the new heavens and the new earth, righteousness will dwell there, and the guardian and the need for the law is gone away. We don't need it anymore in the new heavens and the new earth. Matter of fact, Revelation says it this way, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So when we come to this passage, the question is, I didn't come to implode the law, quite the opposite, really. I came to fulfill the law, for truly I say to you, authoritative pronouncement, this law, until heaven and earth pass away, will it pass away? It will pass away. Not yet, for as far as you can imagine forward, it will still be binding, but it will not be eternal because there will be a new earth and a new heaven that's coming. And then he gives you this statement, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not an iota or a dot. Now, this is written for us in Greek, talking about Hebrew letters. So rather than showing you Hebrew letters, here's what basically that means. If you picture a lowercase i and the dot that's above it, I'm not even going to lose the dot on the i from the law. Every bit of it, every dot will remain. If you think with me about the difference between a capital P and a capital R, that's the other illustration here. Every little dot and every little tittle, which is there, which is the idea. Think about the difference between a capital P and a capital R. What sets them apart? That little line that comes down on the R. Jesus is saying the reality of this law is God has so provided it and sustained it and taken care of it, he said, you're not going to lose the dot off an I, you're not going to lose the line off of an R, because every stroke of the pen that God recorded for us is authoritative and binding. Now, those are really significant words. 
especially to a group of people that are saying, now wait a minute. I was hoping when Messiah came, he was going to change the rules and kind of loosen things up a little bit. The answer is no, I'm not loosening it up. Matter of fact, that's still binding. I'm not losing the dot off the I or the leg off the R because that matters. It's God's law. And so we all of a sudden look back down and say, until all is accomplished, law and the prophets, talking about the progression through human history, until everything is accomplished, inclusive of Peter saying, ultimately, this whole earth is going to dissolve and the heavenly bodies are going to melt. It's still binding. It matters. All of it matters to the Lord. He's not willing to walk away from any of it. Look down with me, if you would, at verse 19. Therefore, based on that commitment, based on everything that he just said, now he's about to tell us how important it is. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The least of the commandments, based on this context, he's talking about the 613 that we see in the first 39 books. And when we hear that, we start thinking, okay, so what do I do with this? Well, one, make no mistake, is he's making it really clear, a couple of things really clear. One is, is that the calling is not only that we do it, but then we teach others how to do it. Catch that? We do it, and we teach others how to do it. Now, this verse from Matthew 28, the verse that you may be familiar with, called the Great Commission, the word go in our English translation looks like the imperative verb. It really is, and it's a participle. Uh, which would be translated as you're going. Now, that's really encouraging to me. Maybe it'll be encouraging to you because it means that the, the heartbeat of this verse isn't that you have to go to another country to go do what the rest of the verse says. No, it just says as you're going, as you go about your day, as you go about through your home, as you go about through your church, as you go about through whatever restaurant you go to, as you drive down the street, as you have conversations. As you go, wherever it is you go, as you go, and here's our imperative verb, make disciples. Make disciples. That's the imperative for every one of us as believers. Make disciples wherever you go. If they're curious, help them become convinced. If they're convinced, help them become committed. If they're committed, help them become commissioned. We just move them forward. Whatever the Lord offers you, you have a part to play in moving them forward. So the next verb is baptizing them. Well, that points to conversion is that you, you're engaged with. We don't move away from people who don't know the Lord. We move into their life because we can't fulfill the great commission if we're not going towards people that don't know him because baptizing is pointing to conversion. So we move into the world of people. And as we go, we're making disciples. As the curious ask questions, we try to help them answer them. We take them to scripture and we take them to the Savior, baptizing them so that they come to faith baptizing in the, them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's what we would say is the ongoing discipleship. If once they come to know the Lord, now this is what the Lord says. This is his law. This is his statutes. This is how he calls us to live. That's our roles. If you get a disciple that's at a curious stage, move them forward to help move them forward to convince, convince to commit it, committed to commission. And that's our calling over and over and over, which is why when he comes to this and he says to us right here, look, here's what you need to do. You do it, and then you turn around and you teach other people to do it. That's part of it. But catch the other part, is we don't have the choice 
to decide what's really important and what's not important. Because he says it this way, is whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. You know what? There's a sense that I think, how arrogant would we be that if God recorded 613 commandments, we would sit in judgment and say, this one's kind of important, this one not so important, so let's relax this. I remember being in chapel in graduate school one day, and we had a, a hymn writer come uh, to chapel, and he was, it made me laugh. Uh, you worship people, you may or may not enjoy this, but he stood up there and said, you know what really irritates me as a worship leader? I write a song with five verses, and I walk in to the room, and I hear somebody go, all right, now we're going to sing verse one, four, and five. Like, verse two and three didn't matter? Like, I created a stream of thought there that they all work together. And you and I would look at that hymn writer like, yeah, yeah, I think your verse two and three aren't necessary. Jesus says, look, I don't know who you think you are that you would relax one of my commands that I gave you, but if you relax it and then you teach others to relax it, that's not the kind of discipleship I'm asking you to do. And so, yeah, there's going to be less of a reward for that. And you and I can look up and say, well, what does that mean? Well, I, I don't know if this is going to put a finger in somebody's chest here or not, and I don't mean to do that. But when I read about the law, and you can go back and you can go read Leviticus 19, and a lot of laws are there. But one of the things that it says is that we shouldn't go to fortune tellers, and we shouldn't do astrology and the zodiac and so forth. What's the heart behind that? It's because this pursuit of that is we want some direction or inclination to the future or what's coming. And God says, you want to deal with the heavenly stars to tell you the future? Come to me. I'm your God. Don't go to the stars. I created the stars. I named the stars. Matter of fact, I can hold, the, I can hold them in my hand. Why go to the stars? Come to me. And I think about how many times I interact with people and they, they're telling me, well, we did this. It was just fun and games. We just went and did this. And I think, is that what it means to relax? One of the least of these laws that we're looking around saying, well, this, this maybe isn't that significant. Because I think that maybe the Lord says, it matters to me. I gave you this law and there's nothing wrong with the law. It was given to you for righteousness sake, to be a guardian, to protect you. Come to me. Don't go to the stars. Come to me. And then I think we get a little bit of heartburn that we think we want equity and equality and we don't have it here on earth. I'd like to know that it's here in heaven. And we read about the fact that there's going to be rewards and we think, what about the rewards? Well, Paul explains what he's talking about is that for believers, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is not a discrepancy between heaven and hell. This is heaven. This is believers in heaven. And the opportunity is to be rewarded for our faithfulness. Now, you can imagine if I serve Ellen in some way and care for her as unto the Lord, the Lord says, Lance, I see you do that, and I'm going to reward you for your faithfulness in that. Now, if I do something for Ellen so that she will let me go have a guy's weekend and I get the guy's weekend, why would the Lord reward me for that? You weren't about me anyway. It was about the guy's weekend, and congratulations, you got the guy's weekend. No, it's about faithfulness. And so it's reward or it's less than reward, but we're in heaven. That's what matters there. And so when he says, you know what, there's this least and there's this greatest, and I still think, well, does that matter? Ultimately, we're with the Lord. That's significant. 
But let me ask you this. If you are walking with the Lord and you're serving him and you're sacrificially at sacrifice following the Lord, do you want him to know? Do you want him to see you? Lord, it makes no sense for me to do what I'm doing other than you call me in this and the world doesn't understand, but I'm all in on you. I love Samuel Hoyt as he writes about this because it's my favorite quote when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better and work harder. Maybe you had that experience. If I just pushed myself harder, I could have done better. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates don't leave the auditorium weeping because they didn't earn better grades. Rather, they're thankful that they have been graduated and they're grateful for what they did receive. Here is the most significant part of this. To overdo the sorrow aspect at the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. That is not what this is. But to underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. Do you want your faith to matter? Because the Lord says, when you're driven by your faith and living for me, I see it and I will reward you for that. We don't need to throw that away as a bad thing. The Lord is building into us and drawing us to himself. And he's saying, trust me. Live life in an upside down world the way that I'm describing in this sermon. Trust me. And when we do, he says, I'm taking note of that way to go. And yeah, so we don't relax the law. Matter of fact, we make more of it. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to implode it. I came to fulfill it. I came to live out and reach and the perfection that it demanded. And I did that for you. So when he comes back and he wants to say, okay, so what do we do? Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees took the 613 laws and they kind of codified it into what would have been known as the oral tradition. Let's make it manageable because those 613 things, those are outlandish. It's just too much. You can't keep up with it. So they came up with an oral tradition. That's what they passed on. Now, I got to tell you, if you were in that day, you would have looked up and said, you want a righteousness that surpasses them? Let me tell you, you walk up and get on the ladder and you look up at the top of the ladder, there's the scribes and the, and the religious leaders of the day. They're the ones that are at the top. And you're thinking, there's no way I can get to the top. There's no way. I will never get there. And then you have Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds them, I'm out. I can't possibly do it. I will never get where they get. See, this ladder that they're on is you and I can say, well, the scribes and the Pharisees are at the top of the ladder. I'm down below them. There may be some people above me. You might try to find, is there anybody beneath me on the ladder? And you might want to say, I'm out. There's no way. I can't do it. I can't be who they want me to be. Until you hear that last phrase, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Whoa. So you're telling me, as the curious, the convinced, the committed, and the commissioned disciples are there, and they're listening to Jesus tell this, is that now you're saying, wait a minute, you didn't come to abolish the ladder, you came to climb the ladder yourself because you could climb it, you could fulfill it, and I'm looking at the scribes and the Pharisees, and you're telling me, if I want to get into the kingdom of heaven, I got to get above them? How in the world is that going to work? 
Now, I got to tell you, I grew up going to a Christian camp in Mississippi, and when they would talk to us about this model of discipleship, this was the model that they gave us, God first, other second, I'm third, okay? God first, other second, I'm third. And I think, I like that. I like lines. I get lines. I get the flow chart. It makes sense to me. But then I come to verses that I can't reconcile with it, like this, when the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest? Bottom line, it's kind of what they did already with the oral tradition. Just bottom line it, Jesus. What do we need to know about the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. I'm like, okay, I got it. So God first, I got it. And then he kept talking. And a second is like that, is like it. And you're like, wait a minute. So the second is like the first. The first was love the Lord your God. Okay, so the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so there we are again with the law and the prophets, the first 39 books of the Old Testament. So the first law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Okay, so that's first. Others are second, right? And I'm third. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor second as yourself. Well, I'm third. Do I love my neighbor as myself, which is third? Or do I move up to second? And when he said, love the Lord your God is first, but the second's like it, well, I don't know what to do. And I get really confused. And so I start thinking, maybe, maybe for my brain, the linear approach to discipleship doesn't work very well. Maybe there's a different system which is the fact that myself has a connectedness in this world. And I'm connected to a family, I'm connected to a church and work and government and the world at large. And I'm called to step into this, all of these environments with myself. And for these scribes and the Pharisees that are on the ladder trying to fulfill all 613 laws, trying to say, okay, how do I apply this law to family? How do I apply it to church, work, government, world? What do I do? Okay, don't do that. That's in the list of not to do's. That's in the list to do. It can be really overwhelming. And then I come to this idea that we've got this new heart. So I've got this new heart that I need to live out of. That's part of the Beatitudes, right? Is that we would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, that there's this poverty of spirit in me. There's this new heart. So the question still for me is, what do I do with that? Because one day things are going to be better. Things are going to be different. Isaiah wrote about it when he's talking about those mourning in Zion in Jerusalem. When he said, to grant those who mourn in, in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Oh, there's a better day coming. I'm going to be able to trade in my ashes for a headdress, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Man, sign me up for that. That's great. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. They may be called, catch this, the oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord that he may be glorified. See, that law was given to bring about righteousness in this world, to tutor us, to be a guardian, to protect us. And the Lord says, one day there's coming. I'm taking off the ashes and putting on the headdress, and I'm putting on a garment of praise, and I'm going to plant my church as the oaks of righteousness. The Lord's going to plant it. It's going to change. Paul wrote about it in Romans this way, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the law, because he didn't come to implode the law. He came to fulfill the law, that he might offer us a better way. Although the law and the prophets, again, those 39 books bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, now what we're getting to is the reality that we couldn't climb the ladder Jesus climbed the ladder. He made it to the top. 
and having paid the penalty for sin, that eternal separation from God, Paul writes about in Romans, wage of sin is death, that he paid the penalty for the sin through his death. And on the resurrection, he walked out of the grave on day three. And then you know what the gospel was? As he offered you and I the chance to sit at the foot of the ladder in his goodness and his grace because of what he did in climbing the cross. See, that's a radically different world. So now when we come to it, we've got this new heart. And I hear Christians say this so often. And so I want to encourage you, if you said this, I really want to encourage you today. It generally comes in the context of this, where I have them talking to a believer, and the believer says, yeah, I don't know what got a hold of me. I, I didn't, I acted in such a foolish way. I just, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. I blew up at, at my spouse or my kid or my boss or my colleague. I just, I lost control. I don't know what happened to me. And then they say this phrase, yeah, but you know what? You know, my heart is just desperately sick. It's deceitful. I, get, I know where they got it from. They got it from Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I hear Christians use it as though I get a pass. I get a pass. It was foolish what I did. But you know what? It's my heart. It's what drove me to do that. Here's the thing. If you keep reading in Jeremiah 14 chapters later, you're going to hear this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's a different heart. You see, a heart with God's law written upon it cannot be deceitful. A heart with God's law written upon it cannot be desperately sick. It can't be. Ezekiel said it this way, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Matter of fact, it's like that car going through a car wash where you could say, Jesus didn't just give us a car wash. No, he took out the engine and put a new engine in. As he describes this heart of stone, think about a heart of stone. It's hard. It doesn't beat. It can't do anything of life. He said, as a matter of fact, I'm going to take out that heart. Which heart? The heart that was desperately sick, the heart that was deceitful. I'm going to take that heart out. I'm going to put in a new heart, a heart of flesh. It's beating. It's alive. As a matter of fact, my law is written upon it. It's not deceitful and it's not desperately sick. This is a new heart that I've given you, and I'll give you that heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, that's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? Because now all of a sudden when we come back to this graphic, that new heart that God put there is alive, it's beating, it's vitalized, God's law is written upon it, his spirit resides in me, and now he's empowering us to do and be all the things that the law was originally intended to provide that we were incapable of doing. See, now it all comes together. And you and I can say, well, wait a minute. So if that's really there, why do I still struggle with sin so much? Like what Paul writes in Romans 7, if you've ever read this chapter, Paul's like, look, I don't do what I want to do. I do the very things I don't want to do and what I want to do. That's not what I do. Matter of fact, I do just the opposite of what I want to do. Romans 7, you can read it. But he says this, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, no believer, no unbeliever has ever said that. In my inner being, I delight in the law of God, but I see that this also is going on. I see the members of my body, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So often in the Christian life, you and I can look at it and think, you know what I need in my Christian life? I need the new study Bible. I need the new book. I need the new Bible study guide. I need the new podcast. I need whatever. And we live function like this. 
is that I'm missing something in my Christian life. And so I've got to get whatever that is out there and I've got to get it in here so I can be the man or woman God calls me to be. Well, that certainly doesn't resonate with the new heart that has God's law written on it, that's alive, that he's put there, his spirit he's put there and empowered us to walk in his statutes. The problem in the Christian life isn't getting anything else in, it's getting what's in and letting it come out. And what Paul says here is the members of my body, my hands, my feet, my mouth, my nose, my eyes, my mind, they wage war against this on a regular basis. And we've got to figure out the reality that we've spent all of our lives arming the members of our body to wage war against this heart. And we've got to disarm this stuff so that this begins to manifest itself in all of our relationships. How do we do that? Why do I still struggle with sin? Well, Jesus says in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can still have that new heart and not abide in him. You're not growing this new heart because the members of the body are waging war against it. And that's where the sin nature is going to come out and struggle. You can have a new heart and still struggle because you've got members of your body waging war against that. Matter of fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The problem isn't getting anything else in. It's already there. You were created to live this out. He prepared them for you beforehand that you and I could walk in them. And so now all of a sudden, let's talk about this idea is that as we abide in Christ, as we learn to walk in him with that new heart, with God's law written upon it, is that we, operating from our new heart, going through ourselves, your personality, your heart, your loves, your passions, your skills, your aptitudes, all of those things, taking that new heart, God's law written upon it, empowered by the Spirit, empowered because you've abided in Christ, get to walk out into your world, your family, your church, your work, and your government, and you get to be his agent for his good purposes in this world. But you're not on the ladder. This isn't about our ladder. This is about our identity and who Christ is and what he's done for us. So the question for us all is, is what, what wall is your ladder leaning against? You're trying to get up the behavioral ladder to earn God's favor? You can't. You're trying to compete with somebody beneath you and saying, hey, I'm beating you on the ladder of, of faith? You can't. You feel like you're eating somebody else's dust who's above you? You don't have to. Stephen Covey wrote this. If, a, if the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take will get us to the wrong place faster. Makes sense, doesn't it? The invitation is to get off the ladder altogether. Jesus climbed the ladder. He didn't destroy the ladder. He climbed the ladder. He fulfilled the ladder. And then he went to the cross to pay the penalty for those of us who could not climb the ladder. And then he offered us the righteousness that he displayed, that he lived to those of us who got off the ladder. Because in the goodness and the grace of who he is, he's invited us to rest. Words like, be still and know that I'm God. Come to me, all you who are tired and heavy laden, and you will find rest at the ladder that I've provided for you. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.